This week I'm joined by Travis J.I. Kokoran, who is a Catholic anarcho-capitalist, a software engineer, a business owner, and an amateur homesteader. He's also living a libertarian lifestyle as much as possible. He is also the author of the science fiction series Aristolus, which includes Powers of the Earth and Causes of Separation, with two more books coming out in the future. Today, we talk about his science fiction in relation to libertarianism. If you wish to support Omitic's podcast, please find the Patreon, donation, and merchandise links in the description below. Please enjoy. Travis Kukorn, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Good to be here. Um, so before we begin, uh, you are the author of The the Powers of the Earth, Aristotle's book one. Uh, book two is is also out, and you know, I believe you're working on more parts books, to it and you're expanding three this, and four. That's yeah right. expanding yep. this universe into and there's a there's a few short stories and a few other things going mm-hmm. on um mm-hmm. and you are the two time two years in a row winner of the prestigious prometheus award which is the kind of libertarian award for fiction which is people like heinlein um and my mind goes blank already, but <laughs> people along those lines. Uh, right, the- and, you know, uh, a bunch of people, uh, both left and right libertarians, have won it. Um, you know, Heinlein uh, has won it sort of retrospectively. Uh, Ken McLeod, a uh, left libertarian Scottish science fiction author, has won it several times. Uh, Cory Doctorow, left libertarian. Um, uh, all of the left libertarians are coming to mind, even though I'm a right libertarian. But yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into the difference later on, because I know mm-hmm. I know where I lean. <laughs> Um, but yeah, before we begin, just a bit about your background and why you uh, why why you wrote this book. It's a very common question. Sure. But why you wrote it? Um, so uh, you asked two questions there. One, my background, um, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm an American. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey and bouncing around a few other states. Went to college for software engineering and history, but uh, there's a lot more money in software than there is in history, so I haven't <laughs> done that as a professional. And about uh, six years ago, my wife and I moved to a farm up in New Hampshire. So um, we, you know, in addition to writing software Monday through Friday um, and writing, you know, a bit of fiction on the weekends, uh, also uh, raise our own livestock and we get most of our food off of the farm and we heat with trees that I cut down in our forest, et cetera. Uh, So that's my background. And um, the second question was, why did I write these books? Growing up, Robert Heinlein was my favorite science fiction author. And, you know, I'll, I'll largely stand by that, although in retrospect sort of as an adult looking back at the same books that I loved uncritically as a 9 or a 10 or a 12 year old I can see them with you know sort of a lot more depth and uh, perspective and I'm not uh, you know such a unalloyed fan as I once was Uh, but I still think that Heinlein you know is a super important author and did a lot of things right so I've read, you know, more or less everything by Heinlein and had at an early age, uh, but my special favorite uh, was his novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which, for those who aren't familiar with it, is this sort of classic uh, trope-creating science fiction novel about a lunar colony that has a rebellion against Earth authority. And it was written, I think, in the 1950s, and it was set in 2076 uh, or so, so very much a parallel with the U.S. Revolution uh, three centuries before that date. And I first came across this book when I was 10 or 12, and I read it literally dozens of times. This is the book that I reread the most uh, in my entire life. Um, and I'm of the generation when, uh, you know, Star Wars was in the theater. So a lot of nine and 12 year olds had seen Star Wars 20 times or 30 times. And I was the kid who'd reread The Moon as a Harsh Mistress 20 or 30 times. 
And I read a quote once, I'm not sure who it was attributed to, that a lot of authors get into writing because they write the book that they want to read but doesn't exist. And that was uh, very literally the case for me. Uh, I was uh, disappointed that there were no sequels, that there wasn't uh, an expanded <laughs> expanded universe, as the kids <laughs> would say these days. Um, and in fact, that's not actually true. Uh, Heinlein had uh, a couple of different future histories, and there are some other books that tie in slightly uh, to the moon is the harsh mistress. Um, the Rolling Stones, nothing to do with the musical group, which came later, but the Rolling Stones was a short uh, young adult book that was uh, set in the same universe and uh, a minor character in one is a big character in the other. But anyway, uh, I wanted more um, of this thing. And so this had been in the back of my mind all through my 20s and early 30s that, you know, someone should do this. I should do this. It's hard. And then January 1st, 2011, I said, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit down for real and every day at the keyboard. And uh, it took me about six years and about six drafts. Uh, and in the process of writing a book, which I thought was going to be 300 pages, it grew to be two distinct books, each about 650, 700 pages. But, uh, you know, I kept working until it was done and it was the quality that I wanted it to be. And um, I had, you know, when I first learned about the Prometheus Award, probably sometime in my early 20s uh, as an award for libertarian uh, science fiction, I thought, gosh, you know, that that's uh, sort of the epitome or a goal to really aim at. And so I was thrilled when the first novel won that award. <laughs> and uh, then I was sort of beyond thrilled when the second novel won that award, too. So so uh, that's the uh, the story. And you said about um, Heinlein there, that when you went back, obviously you absolutely adored, adored these books when you were 12. You said when mm -hmm. you went back later, you noticed some depth, but also perhaps I sense there's a little bit of criticism there. What yeah. kind of major uh, things did you notice and go, hmm, okay, that's that's changed now that I've matured a bit? That's a great question. Uh, there is a good sort of biography or criticism of Heinlein that came out recently. And I forget the title, uh, but I backed the, the Kickstarter. And this was from a, uh, a female author who was approaching Heinlein from her political perspective, which was sort of left of center. So all of us, when we have our heroes, we will say, oh, he's you know absolutely so right on the topic of you know uh, Bitcoin and gold and, and firearms. Oh, but unfortunately, he's quite wrong on you know this issue or that issue. So we go in and we cherry pick. And anytime they agree with us, uh, uh, you know, he's obviously sensical and, and smart and good. And the disagreements are all, you know, unfortunate where he got something wrong, uh, but perhaps can be recontextualized and that he actually was on the right side. He just expressed it poorly. So anyway, um, reading this uh, biography or criticism of Heinlein uh, made me sort of look at his politics. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this best. I, you know, I am a hard libertarian where I think everyone should have every right to do whatever they want with their own lives. Uh, but that said, I'm also a bit of a uh, social conservative where I think, you know, you have the right to do whatever you want. But I tend to think that, uh, you know, going off in direction X or Y or Z is going to have better results than going off in direction, you know, Q or R or S. Mm -hmm. And so some of my disappointment in Heinlein is I think that he was a little bit naive in a mid-20th century intellectual way with sort of radical changes and uh, sort of abandoning Chesterton uh, fences and shelling points for social organization. So you think that even kind of despite his kind of his character, he still got caught up in the, the vibes of the, the mid-20th century? 
Exactly correct. Um, and, you know, I, I think maybe not even caught up, but was sort of a bit of a leading light of that. I think that uh, a lot of social changes for good or ill um, often start amongst intellectuals or, you know, sort of science fiction fans or rationalists. Um, and so I think Heinlein was a bit of that. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not against progress. I'm not against the analysis of new ideas. But if you look at tradition as sort of a uh, time-tested bag of tools that have survived, you know, some trials and winnowing process, uh, you know, traditional practices, I suggest, are going to have a decent success rate, uh, whereas novel hypotheses, there might be great novel hypotheses. <laughs> Um, but I think that if, if you just generate hypotheses about, oh, instead of um, exchanging goods in the marketplace, we could have a central bureau allocating them or we could all vote on stuff or, you know, electronic democracy uh, and financial democracy. And, you know, people, uh, Cory Doctorow um, in his book, uh, uh, Something, The Magic Kingdom, um, one of his earlier books, had this concept of recreating the economy through sort of online communism where Wuffy, uh, which is sort of social credit points are handed out. And, you know, it, it's wonderful to generate these new hypotheses. Uh, it's just my sort of social uh, conservative uh, assertion that a lower percentage of new hypotheses will have uh, good utility than time-tested uh, hypotheses. I completely agree, but I'm going to try not interject too much of my bias uh -huh. into this, uh, uh -huh. e even though that, you know, just out of the corner of my eye, Hans, Hans Hermann Hopp, uh, democracy is, is laying there, but you know, we won't mention that. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So before we get into these, these specifics, uh, I have to ask you the Hermetics question, which is, uh, you can place three thinkers living or dead in a room and mm. listen in on the conversation. Which three do you pick? Mm -hmm. We can, we can take Heinlein out of that now, if, sure, you, if sure. you'd like, so we can get three others to. Right, right. Gosh, uh, as far as philosophers, I, I've always been interested in well, philosophy. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be philosophers. Thinkers, no, no, thinkers. I, I know, but I, I think philosophers are going to be well represented among thinkers. Um, I'm a big fan of Robert Nozick. I'm a fan of David Friedman, um, although I suppose it might be good to... Uh, get more conflict uh, going rather than uh, people are going to, you know, 80% agree. Yeah, the, those two occur to me first. Uh, and the, the nice thing about uh, David Friedman is he's still alive. So perhaps I can uh, get to meet him someday and be in the same room with him. Uh, and I'm not sure about a third. Um, Who would be the kind of antithesis for you? Uh, um, you know, so, so what I want to reach for here is maybe uh, a good intellectually coherent left winger to uh, sort of really put Nozick and Friedman to the test. Do they, do uh, they exist? <sighs> well, you, you see my pausing <laughs> and, and on the video, my eyes are rolling up into the left. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I was actually just on Twitter earlier and I was arguing that I tend to like left wing science fiction uh, a lot, even though I'm not at all a left winger. So, <laughs> You know, Ken McLeod, uh, who is a, a gentleman and a scholar and a left libertarian, uh, it would be uh, fun to have right libertarians um, or just, you know, libertarians without labels debate him and, and see uh, what happened. Okay. So the meeting for you would be a primarily to answer kind of political and economic questions. I think so. Um, I think that politics and economics flow together quite a lot. Uh, you're familiar with David Friedman, I assume. Uh, very um, loosely, yeah. 
Okay, great. Um, he is the son of Milton Friedman, and uh, he writes a lot on political science, uh, but he comes to it largely from the perspective of economics. So the book I'm reading of his right now is Legal Systems Very Different from Our Own. And when I was younger, I found Friedman's books challenging because I was sort of a, a natural rights libertarian in my 20s, you know, and um, you know, the U.S. Constitution, it's wonderful. The Bill of Rights, it's wonderful. It just sets out these things as stated goals. Uh, we should have this right, and government should not have that right unless it's you know checked and balanced by this other power. And David Friedman, um, in his seminal book, The Machinery of Freedom, analyzed government um, in sort of a utilitarian or pragmatic approach. And, and he was a libertarian. He was going for the same goals that I was. Um, but he you know sort of said why you know sort of what mechanisms are effective, and and I found that challenging. And, and I ended up adopting uh, his perspective. So anyway, uh, as I was saying, he's a political scientist and he comes to things from economics because economics is really the study of supply and demand or the study of incentives. Uh, and I think that if you don't look at something in terms of incentives, then you're mostly left arguing, well, I wish things were this way or I wish things were that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's fun, but it's like a bunch of, you know, 12 year olds talking about, you know, could Superman beat up Batman? You know, I, I wish that he could. I wish that he couldn't. You know, it's all very boring. It's uh, more interesting, I think, to say, why is it that the U.S., even though it was founded with a certain set of checks and balances, now operates with a de facto constitution that is not congruent with our written constitution? Why is it that uh, you found a nonprofit with a certain set of goals, and yet 30 years later, it almost always converges to a different set of goals. So in that sense, uh, your question was, why is it that the thinkers that I would put in the room would tend to be uh, economic and political science? And I guess my argument is I see economics as the root of all social sciences in that it looks at incentives. That makes complete sense. And um, we've we've mentioned <laughs> we've mentioned the term now so many times that I think um, I mean I'm sure people are very familiar with libertarianism. It's certainly making its heyday. I mean, uh, any British libertarian is is now you know living living the dream. You know, Brexit's finally happened, and I think it's most definitely going to be a no deal. Um, I you know fingers crossed. Could, it's a big question, but could you please explain what libertarian is in general? If there is mm -hmm. this kind of agreed upon definition, which I imagine there isn't, but hopefully there's a, mm -hmm. and then what it is to you. So right, right. perhaps with this, this would where would be where the distinction between left and right libertarianism comes. Sure. So at least in the U.S., uh, a lot of people in the libertarian corner are familiar with the Nolan chart, which is a two-dimensional uh, political chart. And this contrasts with the more conventional one-dimensional political chart, the left and the right. And as we know, that all comes out of the uh, lead up to the French Revolution, where the different factions were sitting uh, in the stands and sort of different groupings. And the Nolan chart, which I think uh, was created in the 1970s, uh, says that there tend to be two coherent groups of thought. And one set of political thoughts is economic uh, freedoms. Uh, should I have the right to let my labor out at any price I uh, see fit? Or should the government step in and say, no, uh, the terms of your employment cannot be less than this nor more than that? Um, should I be able to uh, start up a new firm as long as my uh, customers and I agree that yes, I will do hair braiding and you are happy with my skills and therefore you'll pay me and that's the end of the story. Or should the government uh, step in and have mandatory regulations and credentials, etc. 
So that's one set, uh, one axis. And then another axis is uh, social freedom. Uh, should an individual have the right to engage in um, a polyamorous relationship and a homosexual relationship? Should they be able to get divorced and remarried? Should they be allowed to uh, drink as much alcohol as they want or uh, smoke pot or you know use other drugs? And so anytime you have two distinct axes, the natural thing to do is, you know, ask if they're orthogonal 90 degrees to each other and, you know, sort of look at what quadrants uh, are there. And so uh, a two by two matrix gives us, uh, you know, four quadrants. One quadrant is authoritarian, where government or society will determine everything, uh, what sort of businesses are acceptable, what wages, what drugs, what relationships. And... Um, and the opposite quadrant is where neither government nor society uh, establishes any of these things and each individual has maximum freedom. Um, so that is sort of the American conception of libertarianism. Um, and now, you know, the story, stories are always simplifying. Uh, you, you tell a story because you want to make things easy to explain to your audience. So the traditional American narrative about the American experience is, you know, we're a rugged frontier people and we're libertarian and we left dear old England so that we could strike out on our own. And of course that, you know, simplified two sentence version is, uh, throws out a lot of detail. And uh, there's a great book, Albion's Seed, that talks about these sort of four different groups in England that settled the eastern seaboard of North America in different areas. And each of these had different conceptions of what is the good. And so in the north, we had the Puritans in New England uh, settling in Boston, which is an area I escaped from six years ago. And uh, you may or may not be familiar with uh, Curtis Yarvin um, mm -hmm. out in um, California, yeah. who writes as Menchus Moldbug. And... Curtis, um, you know, dovetails quite nicely with the Albion's seed hypothesis. Um, and so if, if you look in New England in the U.S., you see that it wasn't really that libertarian of a society in the days of settlement. Um, it was actually a sort of rigid little church structure that had very strict ideas uh, about how people should behave. And you could be fined or whipped for not coming to church at the right time, uh, for not working when you should have been working. They didn't like sloth. They didn't like this and that. And so uh, the story says we we're all libertarians in you know, 1776 or 1676, but we weren't necessarily and then down south, of course, it's not very libertarian at all to own people and uh, whip them if they don't pick your cotton at the appropriate rate. The, the question is, what is libertarianism? And I talked about that, and I guess I'm segueing off into a topic of my own creation, which is, <laughs> is America a libertarian country? And, and I think in conception it is, or in myth it is, but, uh, you know, everyone tells myths about themselves that they're the cleaned up tidy version. Um, and I think that America has a long tradition of libertarianism, but also a long tradition of sort of counter libertarianism. And a final note on this, um, listeners may be familiar that the United States has both its constitution, but uh, several years before that, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document. No court ever refers to it when trying to interpret uh, statutes. Uh, it's a political document and a rhetorical document. And it was designed at the time to explain the American position to um, both allies within England, um, you know, merchants and other stuff, but also potential allies on the continent. And this is one of the ways that Washington and others convinced the uh, French monarchy to back the U.S. But anyway, in this document, there is a list of grievances against uh, the English king. And these grievances, you know, in American school, we're all told, oh, you know, this is us complaining, demanding our rights. But if you actually read through them, there's this fascinating thing where the different factions on the U.S. Eastern seaboard each contributed certain complaints 
complaints. And these complaints are not all of the same genus or family. Uh, so some of the complaints are classical libertarian rights of, you know, the, the government is taxing us and damn it, that's our money and we should get to keep it. But then there's also these sort of uh, petty authoritarian complaints, you know, and this is coming from the New England Puritans. We want to establish laws to regulate the people and we're not given the power from higher up to regulate the peasants. Uh, and, and that's not at all a libertarian argument. That's, that's sort of a wonderfully little micro-authoritarian argument of, you know, uh, why are my whips not being delivered? I want to use them now. So anyway, I, I've meandered, but those are some thoughts on libertarian. Okay. And so you personally see this as the, the direction for sort of terminal freedom. Is that what it is? Uh, is that what it is to you own- personally? Yeah, uh, my personal ethics are strongly libertarian, um, and I am, you know, in favor of the maximum freedom for individuals, uh, whether they agree with me, and that's wonderful, they'll make a good neighbor, or whether they entirely disagree with me, um, you know, and, and the argument I make is, uh, you know, well, let me back up a bit. There are a couple of different uh, viewpoints on what a utopia is when you have different people with different preferences. And I mentioned Nozick earlier, and in his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, uh, he talks about this concept of a meta-utopia. Uh, and the idea is that any given utopia, you know, you're, uh, let's say, a major fitness fan, and you think, gosh, you know, utopia would have running trails everywhere and uh, climbing gyms at no expense for the citizens, and someone else says, God, that sounds terrible. I never want to run. I never want to climb. Uh, but utopia would have free rock concerts. Um, and, you know, a third person would say, well, you know, uh, I, I want to be in a lesbian commune with no men around. So that's utopia to have no men. And Nozick said that effectively any one utopia is everybody else's dystopia. Um, but the one thing you can do is create a higher level structure that allows small utopias to exist. And this idea has been rediscovered multiple times. Uh, Mencius Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin has talked about um, patchwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slate Star Codex, who is a psychiatrist out in California writing under that NIM, uh, has talked about Archipelago. Uh, I'm, I'm terrible with pronouncing words, uh, correct me if that's wrong. Uh, but his concept is metaphorically a whole bunch of islands with different societies on each one, and you can migrate from island to island. And that's really my idea of the best possible world, sort of small communities where uh, people can move to one where uh, things work for them, and then they can exercise the types of freedom they want there. Yeah. I think the um, from recollection regarding Moldbug's um, patchwork, uh, mm-hmm. his, I think one of his fr- frustrations there was that if you look historically, if you if you look back into um, you know the Roman Empire was entirely fragmented, and then he he mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, Renaissance Italy was extremely fragmented, and basically mm-hmm. the single most all the the most uh, what we could say prosperous, progressive in terms of utility in ways that are actually able to you know not modern day progress which is just a buzzword for like you know we're progressing um all these mm-hmm. all these times when when the world was just completely fragmented into um what what the uh, the romans called uh, i believe it was politics or mm-hmm. politics yeah um you know this was when we were most successful and um it seems to be you know that that's seems to be the system i'm hoping we're actually heading towards because yeah. it's it seems to be that the to me at least the natural order of things is always uh, to hold a unification takes more energy than it's ever going to give you um, mm-hmm. so it's sort mm-hmm. of you know eventually entropy will keep up with any form of of unification really 
Right. This gets back to our conversation earlier about economics uh, being, I asserted, the core of political science because it all boils down to incentives. And, uh, you know, it, it seemed that you were gr- reaching in the direction of sort of a physics uh, analogy of, you know, what is the energy expenditure to hold a thing together versus, you know, that that's just a waste if letting it fall apart um, and, and then not having that expense overhead. And I agree with that. And one of the reasons that I'm hopeful that the future holds uh, more freedom, you know, perhaps of a narco-capitalist flavor, perhaps of other flavors, is that I see information technology uh, and the growth in it changing incentives and costs. So if we talk about public goods, and I forget the full list, but public goods are those things that are non-rivalrous just because I use a road doesn't mean you can't also use a road um, and non-excludable, um, meaning you know if we put a park out there, um, then everyone can walk on the park and there's no way to stop them from doing so. Uh, I think that information technology allows for excludability. Um, and here in the U.S., and I imagine you have something there, uh, we have a system where you can drive down the highway and instead of stopping to pay a toll, there's a transponder in your car that uh, automatically debits the toll off of your credit card. And this uh, strikes me as a wonderful technology because you've just demonstrated that roads are no longer um, non-excludable. You've said that, you know, we can't exclude people from roads. And, and this sounds terrible, right? Here's a libertarian saying excluding people is good. Uh, that word choice is a little... Um, sub-ideal. You know, exclusion is good because exclusion allows people to invest. The ability of a restaurant to exclude non-paying customers allows the restaurant to only allow in people who are going to pay, which means that they can hire good chefs and it creates value. And so anyway, I see information technology is allowing many more things to be uh, privatized. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a classic kind of libertarian uh, attack on libertarians is it's the instant question who builds the roads but i think one of the things the you know i think it's going to be impossible for me to not let my bias through here so i'm just gonna see what happens um but one of the one of the magic amazing things that the state has managed to do is to uh have people forget that it's them that's paying taxes uh it's it's always another or it's always um they would just say the government will pay for it they sign up flip it on its head and say that you know we'll pay for it but the wheel is is actually us so when people think about you know uh this toll thing on a road it seems so absurd because the money's coming out of your pocket but they cease to think what they they, yet they cease to think they forget sorry that the money if they're on the road the money is already out of their pocket for that road so if the road is you know and it's frustrating for where i live because you know uh, i think tires last about one year tops here so Mm -hmm. you know rural areas i think breed libertarians quicker than others yes (laughs) uh and you know uh on that note i'm out in a rural area now and while it's not a libertarian paradise um there is a sort of default ethos that people are assumed to be capable of doing things for their uh, themselves, uh, which I quite mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, and this ties into something Heinlein uh, talked about at the very end of Farmer in the Sky. Uh, Farmer in the Sky is a, a great young adult novel that Heinlein wrote and uh, talks about terraforming one of the uh, moons of Jupiter, Ganymede, and at the very end of it, um, after all of our hero's adventures, he ends up leaving Ganymede and heading further out um, because he asserts that freedom can only exist on the frontier. And I think that, I'm not sure if it can only exist on the frontier, but I think that lower population density is certainly more conducive to freedom. 
Yeah, but I think that, I think the front is an interesting um, idea to be had anyway, because not to get too um, precious about it, but I think in a certain way, what's going on in terms of the internet and the way that that's changing, there's certain frontiers to be had there, and I think there's there's micro frontiers to be had everywhere. But in terms of um, real life, there's still something to be said about you know a, a dead deer splayed on the road and having to having to deal with those things. We, we're dipping into the next question here, which is straight away in Aristotle, and I mean straight away, there is a an anti-government, but specifically an anti-bureaucracy, an anti-paperwork, an anti-committee vibe. So I'm assuming that you've had to deal with a lot of this stuff, but also where do you, how do you see libertarianism, how does it tackle this? Um, by this, uh, could you clarify, please? Institutions such as the DMV, such as tax mm-hmm. institutions, such right. as um, right. any government thing where you are forced into basically what is a racket. You either do this or right. you don't have it. Right. And those things are always rife with, you know, have you filled in subsection B of this and this and this? And you end up wasting an hours and hours and hours to do something that at the end you think, why, you know, I, all, I always think, why couldn't this just be a private company? Because they they make it quick. So there's two distinct questions here. One question is how do we organize such things in a libertarian society? And the other question is how do we transition from a state society to a libertarian society? And I've got a you know better answer for the first one. The second one is problematic, right? If, if I knew the answer, I'd be out doing it, <laughs> trying to tear down the U.S. government or something. First, we have to look at the things that government does. And uh, I, I see two categories. There are things that the government does that are, in fact, useful. Maybe uh, they're very expensive. They're poorly organized. They're you know, third rate, uh, but it's still the kind of thing that you would see in a libertarian society. There will be teachers in a libertarian society. There will be nurses. There will be people who build roads, uh, to hop back to your earlier example. Um, And we know exactly how a lot of these things would work. Uh, We would, you know, use IT or some other mechanism to see who uses a certain service and we would bill them. Uh, You you can imagine living, you know, in the Soviet Union and, and arguing, well, how could capitalism possibly work who would give you the food who would farm the food uh you know without the state to coordinate the fertilizer mm-hmm. and and your answer might seem a bit uh, odd to someone you know died in the wool and steeped in that educational world or you'd say i don't know all of the details but uh, i i certainly believe that independent firms would engage in the process of making fertilizers and other independent firms would buy those fertilizers and make food and, and you might get responses well how would they know the right amount to buy how would they be able to you know buy <laughs> them you know could they sell the food for enough to buy it without a bureaucrat organizing it you, know, you just can't trust this and of course you know we know that you can um this you know this is how it worked before the soviet union and it's how it worked after the soviet union and so uh you know that's my answer to all sorts of things i don't know exactly how many road companies there would be i don't know if the billing would be monthly or per use uh i, I would like to see all of these models tried and, and i'm sure they would be tried capitalism is ruthless and experimenting and it's ruthless and winnowing uh, and i think that winnowing is actually the most important thing um the problem with socialism or one of the many problems in socialism is that when something doesn't work it doesn't die it just keeps going on sucking uh, utility and value out of other sectors of the economy uh and so you know when the u.s government does a thing like roads we can say okay uh, in libertopia uh we would still have roads and they'd be private companies 
but then there's the useless things, the things like uh, licensing people who braid hair and making sure they take an 800 hour course so that they do it correctly. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, you know, the vast majority of these would not exist at all uh, in a libertarian society. Mm -hmm. So, but then the question uh, or the implicit question is how do we transition um, from our current society to one more like that? And I think one of the answers is information technology will allow these things. But I think there's always going to be a huge incentive structure that is going to push the, uh, the less skilled and the less desirous of working and the uh, more desirous of using social control um, to try to stop freedom from breaking out. I mean, you know, we've got our uh, Joe Bidens over here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, what of utility has he done in his entire life? Uh, and, and I don't want to pick out, you know, one guy as the epitome of parasite. You know, there's tens of millions of parasites in society. Um, and they interpose themselves. I mean, rent seeking is the classical economic term. Uh, they get in the middle of a process and peel off uh, some of the utility. And the, the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is making whatever he's making a quarter million dollars a year, that's not too terrible. That's a relatively small drip. Um, the problem is that in order to extort the money that these people get, they end up uh, you know, mangling the economy with all sorts of distortions. So they will put in a distortion that causes, you know, a billion dollar dead weight loss just so that they can be the kingmaker who turns the flow on or off. Um, so anyway, talking to incentives, I think that anytime you are pushing for a libertarian society, you have to realize that this huge swath of other people are pushing back. Um, and they might not realize, you know, no one thinks of themselves as the villain. Uh, Joe Biden and, you know, uh, 10 million other people like him aren't sitting there saying, you know, yes, I'm literally Hitler. I'm twirling my mustache. I'm trying to ruin all that is good in order to steal some utility for myself. Uh, their concerns, as expressed in their own internal monologues, are valid concerns. I'm, I'm sticking up for the weakest among us trying to build a just society. Um, and so it is, I think, uh, not just a technological problem, but a political and a social problem to deal with that. And uh, I'm an introvert, not an extrovert, so I don't know how to convert the masses to the, the rousing <laughs> ideals of libertarianism. I wish I did. Do you think then that these, not mentioning any specifics, but the, the collective parasite are largely those who can't take full responsibility for the fact that they uh, they're alive yeah um i would absolutely agree with that um hopping back to we were talking about uh, early american history earlier and our second president uh thomas jefferson is that right second i'm gonna embarrass myself in public um but Thomas Jefferson uh, spoke of the yeoman farmer as his ideal. And this is taught in American middle schools and uh, public schools uh, that, you know, Jefferson said yeoman farmer, uh, but he was confused. And that was not, in fact, America's uh, destiny to be a nation of farmers. And, um, you know, I just accepted this as given when I was a youth. And then later I thought that word yeoman, what does that mean? And I looked it up. And I realized, oh my gosh, the educational establishment has this entirely wrong. Um, and as an aside, that's not that surprising because the educational establishment is dominated uh, by, you know, first of all, midwits. Uh, teachers are not the smartest members of society. Uh, but second of all, they are all government employees. They're all unionized. Um, and there's this Gramscian concept of the march through of the institutions. You know, Gramsci was an Italian communist and the institutions uh, very much include the educational institutions because if you can educate the youth, you can steer a society. 
So there's a whole lot of stuff looking back on my education. I look back, I'm like, God damn it. This is left-wing talking points. And mm -hmm. it was just fed to me when I was, you know, nine years old and 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the whole thing about Jefferson, Jefferson arguing for yeoman farmers and the word yeoman is discarded and the concentration is on the word farmer. Yeoman uh, means a self-employed small business owner farmer as opposed to a tenant farmer. He owns his capital and he owns his labor. So really Jefferson's point was that we are and we should continue to be a nation of self-employed individualists. And when I look around, uh, you know, and, and that, that combined with Heinlein has been sort of my ideal. And so I've always wanted to do everything. I've wanted to be self-sufficient my entire life. And, and, you know, yesterday I was butchering a ram that I grew on the farm and will be, you know, eating uh, ram burgers. So uh, this is the way I've structured my own life. But anyway, uh, Jefferson's point about the yeoman farmer was saying, you know, an ideal society is built out of good building blocks and a building block when someone wakes up in the morning and there is no boss to complain to there is no paycheck expected on friday what he gets is exactly what he generates for himself mm -hmm. if he wants to be warm this winter he will go out and cut down some trees and split them and stack them if he wants to harvest a lot of wheat this fall he will make sure to sow appropriately uh if he wants his house to be warm he will you know work on the house the society that we live in right now is so atomized um, and responsibility just for the details of your own life uh, or my own life. Where does your heat come from? Where does your electricity come from? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not going off on a uh, Amish, you know, we should. But economically and technologically and everything, the controls for our life have been taken away from the individual and handed out to other people. So what does this reward this rewards people who are good at performing in the market economy and that's neither good nor bad it just is uh it rewards people who are good at interacting in the social sphere um because you can you know you're told all the time well if you don't like xyz pass a law go to town hall so we have created a social structure that rewards people who are good at process and good at building coalitions um and, you know, I'm not an anti-technological person saying, you know, 1741 was the ideal year. We should all be out in the woods with nothing but a hatchet and three chickens. Not remotely. Uh, technological society is wonderful. Um, but it pays to pay attention to what a given sort of societal organization rewards and penalizes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with the, the you know, being spoon fed. And it's not even being spoon-fed specific left of things. It's overarching things, ide overarching ideas such as, you know, egalitarianism and equality as as, mm -hmm. as a priori is just they're not even debated. Um, right, right. If we take this this conception of libertarianism which you've defined, now we're going to tread into the murky waters of how do you define the left and the right of mm, left mm -hmm. libertarianism and right libertarianism because there is right. very clear uh, authors and camps. So. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking earlier about the Nolan chart and the two dimensions. And one thing that's been interesting to me before we dive into just the libertarian quadrant and look at the left and right libertarian, you know, mm -hmm. pulling back and looking at the overall thing, the modification of the left over the last 30 or 40 years has been quite interesting. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, the left was anti-CIA anti-FBI. It was Lenny Bruce, uh, you know, anti-speech codes. I should be able to say these various swear words. Um, it was, you know, rebellion is cool. Mm -hmm. um, the power structure is bad. 
And the left has, in the year 2020, become more Republican or, or more right than the right was in 1960. I mean, you know, we have in the U.S. right now with the impeachment trial, uh, the left saying, you know, how dare you disagree with the secret police in the FBI? <laughs> like, you know, and I don't want to dive into the details of the impeachment trial or the president or these allegations, but just that phrase, how dare you disagree with the secret police? That's not the left I knew of back in the 1970s. That's amazing to me. Well, I think I think this this change is actually more recent because I, I mean I'm only I'm only 25 and I remember when I was so this is only 10 years ago. I remember the left being uh, sort of in the UK at least very uh, pro unions, pro small communities, mm-hmm. um, anti state, heavy mm-hmm. anarchic vibe. Um, mm-hmm. So you ever said communists, anarchists, but there was an extremely anti state vibe. And then within the last uh, five to seven years or so, it's like yeah, we love the EU. Wait, 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 wait! But you know, wait, back up, back up. You love, you uh, love this uh, sort of hegemonic, just leviathan of power. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I have no clue where that came from. But yeah, it's a certainly it's a strange. But they, but they still somehow are left wing. That's the strange yeah. thing. That's the strange. So, thing. I, I saw a very interesting thing. Gosh, 10, 20 years ago, and it was a long time series study across decades, if not hundreds of years, of uh, voting in the U.S. Uh, uh, Congress. And it set out a two-dimensional space, and it wasn't the Nolan chart space. It was just sort of an arbitrary, mathematically defined two-dimensional space. And they used the correlation between Senator 1 voting on something and Senator 2 and Senator 3. And so they got a scatter plot. And, you know, the, the point is the axes are explicitly unlabeled. And then you can go to the next year, and some of the uh, congressmen are, leave office and others come in. But there's uh, data points that last from one step to the next so you can anchor it and uh they ran this you know for decades if not centuries and the very interesting thing is you see these two big uh uh, clusters on the map which makes sense uh there are uh incentives in coalition politics that you're going to vote like the people that Mm -hmm. you vote with even Mm -hmm. if you don't fully agree with them there's vote trading there's all sorts of stuff but the fascinating thing is that over the years and over the decades these clusters stayed opposite from each other, but rotated around the origin. Um, And, you know, they retain their names, uh, you know, every now and then they don't. Um, Back in the 1850s or 1860s, um, one of the U.S. parties broke in half and splintered. Um, But, uh, you know, Lincoln, um, who uh, was the sort of northern one who uh, was against southern secession and invaded the south and 3% of the U.S. population ended up dying um, because the concept of exit was so intolerable that, you know, the the central government must be preserved. You know, Lincoln was effectively a figure of the left. Um, It was very analogous to the current, you know, SJW thing that we have to go down there. We have to tell these primitive mouth breathing inbred hillbillies the correct way to live like northerners. and the the name tag on his party was the Republicans, and Republicans, you know, were the party of the right in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but now <laughs> maybe we're starting to do another lap because now we have the sort of the Democrats of Hillary Clinton, uh, who are you know praising the the Patriots and the CIA and the FBI, and they're very upset at these uh, young kids who have no respect and are making jokes about sensitive uh, uh, religious topics like gender issues and everything. You know, you you have to obey your elders, you have to toe the party line. Um, 
And so one thing I'm curious about, and I don't have an answer yet, is what is it that sort of uh, formulates this Red Queen's race where the parties are continually drifting? And, you know, I, I've seen some things um, going back to Godelesh or Bach decades ago um, and other things in uh, reading about evolutionary algorithms in computer science that I think maybe explain why the parties aren't static, why they're sort of chasing each other around. Um, but it's still an open topic and I find it fascinating. Even even though that you mentioned earlier, kind of the left and the left first and the right is is mm. this sort of si oh. silly axis, which you know, French Revolution, you're sat either side of them, and I can and they they really that that period of history really doesn't even map to what we now mean by left and right. But in terms mm -hmm. of but in terms of left and right libertarianism, um, right, right. So you're yes, right. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You're uh, you're. Uh, Maybe you should be, begin with the right, because sure. you, you're a, you, so, you 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 self-identify as a right libertarian. Right. Uh, so I do. Uh, and I live in New Hampshire. And for those who aren't aware, there is a very, very minor uh, American political movement uh, coming out of the libertarian corner uh, called the Free State Project. And the Free State Project had as the thesis, you know, hey, there's perhaps only 20,000 or, you know, 200,000 libertarians and we're scattered across the country and we have effectively no say at the town and state level. But if we all congregated in one place, we would have more say. Uh, and this was launched 10 or 15 years ago. And, um, you know, I ended up moving to New Hampshire, not really for that, um, but it certainly didn't hurt. Um, so I've come and I bumped into a lot of libertarians in the area. And, uh, you know, there are some right libertarians and some left libertarians. So I can define what I think right libertarians are. Mm -hmm. uh, defining what left libertarians are is a bit harder. I've tried. I've asked left libertarians uh, and I have not gotten a coherent answer. So I'll, I'll address that, too. Uh, but right libertarians, uh, I think, are pretty well described by the phrase classical liberal. Um, they mostly want to internalize externalities they want to take uh, responsibility for themselves however much money they earn on the market or you know through whatever uh, other means investing they will you know use that money uh, they will invest uh, they will you know take uh, responsibility for their education of their children and there's uh, some cultural norms that tend to correlate but you know aren't definitive uh, right libertarians are more likely to be interested in hunting and shooting they're more likely to be interested uh you know in, in all these sort of red tribe um uh cultural norms mm -hmm. now left libertarians their cultural norms tend to map more towards the american blue tribe cultural norms um you know there is a higher likelihood that they'll be involved in you know whatever polyamory or uh drug legalization pushing or using marijuana recreationally um but as far as politics, uh, you know, I've, I've asked them, OK, so how do you differ with, you know, right libertarians? And I'll get answers like, well, you know, I, I don't like corporations. I want people to self-organize. And I'll say, OK, what does self-organize mean? And they'll say, you know, uh, perhaps a co-op, a workers co-op. And I'll say, OK, great. So. You know, if, if there's 10 of you at, you know, Jim, uh, you know, the, the Workers Dungaree Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, and then there's 10 other people working at, you know, the, the Capitalist Dungaree Corporation, mm -hmm. and you're competing, uh, does that satisfy your desires? Is that the sort of social, you know, structure you want? And, and the very best ones say, yeah, I suppose that would be acceptable. I would hope that the workers co-op would be so enticing that people would start defecting from the capitalist one and join us in the co-op. And OK, that's a 
coherent argument. I don't think they ever will. No, um, okay. Having met left libertarians and watching them try to organize things, uh, I, I shudder to think about you know payroll uh, arriving. I shudder to think about inventory management. Uh, they're often very sweet people, um, but they tend to they, they give the impression that they'd rather sit around on the couch in the co-op talking about what the ideal dungarees would be and a lot less time actually making crap happen. Mm-hmm. So. I tend to think that left libertarianism is more of a mood or a social stance than a actual uh, coherent ideology. Um, but I assert that only because of lack of evidence. If uh, you know a, a left libertarian were to phone into the show right now and give a great answer, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced that I, I'm misunderstanding things. Okay. I mean, I don't know too. I don't know too many. I mean, there's there's no way they're gonna effect i mean if 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 we took the example of the co-op versus the, the capitalist dungary comp, uh, company mm-hmm. you already have competition there between two and capitalism inherently adores and works with competition so i think we all know mm-hmm. i think we all know who's going to win uh, along along, <laughs> along with the fact that any kind of centrally organized economic system doesn't have a profit loss incentive so right. they don't know what to order or what to buy or what to you know right and, and, and there's an additional thing uh there's been research talking uh about risk-taking ability and uh, i saw this in the context of rewarding scientific grants and there was a study done uh, proposing to people, we can either put you in pool A or in pool B. And in pool A, the very best candidates will get very large grants, but the bottom 50% will not get any grants at all. Or you could be in pool B where everyone, regardless of merit, gets the same grant. And there's exactly what you would expect, that there is self-segregation where the people who uh, have good reason to believe that they are above average want to opt into a system that rewards uh, you know, good work and good skills and all these other things. And the people who have good reason to believe, and you know, no one knows your skill set better than you yourself do. Mm-hmm. And no one knows how hard you're willing to work better than you yeah. uh, do. So th- this is a very clever way to get people to expose hidden knowledge about their own motivations. Uh, so given all of this, I also think that when the capitalist Dungaree Corporation, which has stock incentives and uh, merit pay and all these other things, is hiring people, the kind of people who don't want to work too hard aren't even going to interview there. They're going to you know, go over and see if there's any coffee at the workers' uh, co-op, uh, and then everyone can sit around till 11 p.m. smoking weed and discussing what Dungarees could be like someday. <laughs> Back to Aristolus, and it's... Uh... An idea you briefly mentioned, um, which is X here. So Aristotle really is a, a narrative, not to get too deep into the story and spoil it for people, but uh, some people strapped some anti-gravity drives. They've gone to the moon because they're sick of Earth and all its uh, bureaucratic nonsense. And mm-hmm. uh, they've begun a libertarian colony in the Aristotle crater. Um, so really, this is a very large overarching metaphor for, for exit for leaving for saying you know so how important is this to is is this the actual the entire libertarian struggle to say like to be able to draw the line right that 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 is uh, a great insight and a great analysis um and 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 afterward to book two i talk about one of the themes and um i think the author is alfred o hirschman who uh wrote the essay contrasting uh loyalty voice and exit and uh mine by personality and preference is always exit um 
And, you know, I'm an introvert. Uh, when a party is too noisy, I want to leave. I don't want to tell everyone else to tone it down. I don't want to change the party. You know, just, okay, fine, I'm ready to go. And so my politics are the same way. When uh, taxation in Massachusetts and the government was too overbearing, I didn't want to uh, start community groups and start a conversation and sign up voters. I just wanted to leave. So I left. Um, and this actually ties back. This could be one of the differences between right libertarians and left libertarians. I think that left libertarians tend to love process and they love talking. Um, so uh, maybe one of the things is, you know, their modes of interacting with people are voice and loyalty. And right libertarians have the mode of interacting of exiting. But anyway, yes, um, Aristillus is very much a love letter to the concept of exit. Uh, it is modeled, Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is very obviously and self-consciously modeled on the American Revolution of 1776. Uh, I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, Aristillus, it's like the American Revolution. Mm, no, it's not. It's actually a reference to the uh, settlement of the Icelandic Free State around you know 1000 AD or 950 AD which was to my mind or to my knowledge the very first case of exit you know uh things suck here um king whatever it was fair hair harold fair hair i think um uh, was starting to tax and unify uh the the scandinavian areas so a bunch of people just got in their boats and headed to the northwest so I, I, I think your question was, is this about exit? And my answer is yes, it's about exit. I'm not sure if I missed a, a follow-on question. Uh, yeah, just just the importance of exit regarding libertarianism. Right. But that you know, that's, yeah. you've made that clear, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there might be other libertarians, and and a lot of the libertarian establishment. If you're looking at. Um, the Koch Foundation, which uh, it's not clear how libertarian it is these days, um, and other uh, U.S. think tanks. I mean, obviously, given that we don't have anti-gravity drives today and we don't have uh, unexplored land masses to the northwest, uh, exit is not uh, super pragmatic in the year 2020. So, you know, it comes down to voice is really uh, the best plausible thing. Now, for the year 2040, 2050, I have, you know, high hopes for exit. Mm -hmm. um, I think that technology uh, will allow it. So, yeah, th that's my personal flavor of libertarianism, but I think other flavors of libertarianism uh, depend on exit a bit less. Yeah, that, that seems to be the route I take as well, because the problem with it is, is of course, if you if you want to give everyone all their personal freedoms. Um, so, for instance, I really hate marijuana. I'm just, mm -hmm. it bores me. The people who smoke it bore me. I want mm -hmm. nothing to do with it, and I don't want to be around it. Yep. But Wonderful. I'm fine with you doing it. Just I'll be over here. And we'll right, put a, right. and we'll put a wall up, and that's that's uh -huh. the thing, you know. Um, I want to be able to leave that room. So that's that seems to me. I think the left libertarian stance there would be to try have a discussion about how we can reach, right, right, uh, yeah, how we can reach, you know, uh, an agreement where we can all, right, all right. kind of, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, there are left libertarians here in New Hampshire, and I started talking to one of them, and his dream is to establish a hacker space or a maker space, <clears throat> you know, big building with milling machines and lathes and welding equipment. You know, I live on a farm, and I've got a big building filled with milling machines and table saws and welding equipment and everything. And uh, so the idea of having a maker space uh, would be horrible for me, right? Uh, it means that when I organize the tools, I come back and they're disorganized. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm using the MIG gun, I come back and we're out of wire it means i have to sign up on a sheet um and i realized i had an insight which is the reason that this left libertarian acquaintance of mine was more interested in building a shared hacker space or a shared workspace than just collecting tools on his own is what i see as the cost which is all of the talking the organizing the interacting with people he as an extrovert saw as a benefit 
Um, and so, you know, there's the sign bit that's flipped. And so when you were saying, uh, you know, these other libertarians, um, if, if the topic of marijuana comes up, then they would want to start discussing uh, during which hours do we smoke pot on the group uh, couch and what hours do we not? Because for them, that discussion is a benefit, not a cost, mm -hmm. is my thought. Yeah, which brings me to the, so perhaps the, the, the difference, because I have this question here about how libertarianism has this underlying emphasis on construction, creation, invention. Mm -hmm as opposed mm -hmm. to talking. So perhaps that's where the right. difference is, is sort of right libertarians are like, don't, don't show me, don't show me, don't, sorry, don't tell me what you're going to do. Cause I'm already, I'm already building it, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Wonderfully said. Um, and there is, uh, I've got some sort of swirling amorphous thoughts here. There are a lot of people who like to talk about, you know, what would be great. And there is sort of a uh, libertarian slash hacker scene uh, ethos of, you know, show me working code or shut up. You know, th there's just no substitute for execution. Uh, and this ties in a little bit to the whole sort of startup world. And I've launched startups myself. I ran two companies for 14 years. Um, there's so many people who want to talk about the novel they're going to write someday, about the code they're going to write, about uh, the company that we could all form together. And that's great. But there are hurdles and hurdles are good. This gets back to when I was talking about, uh, um, you know, public goods. And I was saying that exclusion is good. Uh, exclusion is good and hurdles are good because they, for very little cost, separate the doers from the talkers. Um, you know, the people who are willing to trade resources from those who just want to consume them. And, you know, it, it can seem a little off-putting if you show up in, you know, some sort of hacker discussion group and say, I've got a plan for a tiny language that would allow me to uh, create 3D geometrical shapes in computer memory. And th the answer, okay, you know, show us a prototype and shut up until then, uh, sounds a bit harsh, but actually it's a wonderful gate because, okay, just go do that. That'll take you 10 hours or it'll take you 80 hours. But once you do, you're one of us, you are contributing something, you're a solid person. And uh, the ratio of wannabes to people who are willing to sweat a little bit is uh, a bad one. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of a, I have an awful gut reaction to stuff like that. I've had quite a few people say, oh, I've thought about starting a podcast. And I, my, my, <laughs> my, yeah, my reaction is, no, you haven't. Because you, you, right. haven't, you haven't thought about it at all. Because right. what do you... You, you would know, have, yeah. Yeah, or, or, yeah. or I've thought about writing a book. Sorry, do you not have a pen and a pad? Because in reality, you know, that is... That is all you need, and it's just... So, so that leads on to another topic, or a side topic, on creation. You know, the, the communists had a somewhat convincing piece of propaganda in 1920, which is the capitalists have a monopoly on the means of production. And, and you know, I, I disagree with them. I'm vehemently anti-communist. But when you conceive of a factory as a large brick building with a coal-fired plant and a whole bunch of lathes and a heat-treating thing, the means of production, actually, it's a coherent concept, and it's not easy for a random person to get access to that. But in the year 2020, you know, you would like to have a podcast. Well, how much does a web camera and a pair of headphones cost? You mm -hmm. know, Art, you bastard. You know, I'd like to write a novel. You know, a used laptop is $20 off of eBay. You know, there's mm -hmm. so much stuff. You know, you want to do computer graphics? You want to start writing concept art? You know, launch a Kickstarter, start sketching stuff, take a digital photo of it. Um, it has never been easier to, you know, uh, purchase the means of production for pocket change and start bootstrapping yourself. So I, I think that the distinction between those who are willing to take command of their own lives and achieve and create versus those who want to sit around and fart uh, has never been more clear. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the, the sort of 
just determinist kind of bleak almost bleak but for anyone who is a doer it's not bleak so mm-hmm. basically people who people who are gonna going to do already are so there's this right. sort of a strange kind of if someone's on about something you you already know that they're not yeah unless they go oh this horrible thing happened or something along right. those lines but right. even then the people- or the idea occurred to me two months ago uh that i could learn guitar okay we're only two months in we'll check back in another two months if in two months you own a guitar and you're doing chords then you know great yeah talking about creation and construction um it's very very it's made very clear that and this is quite this is something unique i found to your book i mean perhaps i haven't read enough libertarian literature but you make it clear that the the actions of individuals matter in themselves Mm -hmm. as the individual's action Mm -hmm. as opposed to nations collectives because all we hear in the news Mm -hmm. we don't hear i don't know let's just say joe bloggs from france we hear France has done X, or right, uh, right. the UN has done X, or etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Et and that's all we hear. And it's it kind of it throws everything into kind of a a tumult of vague nonsense that you can't get your hand on anything. So you just you just know clippets of things as opposed right. as opposed to if 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 you if you, heard, if you heard you know Joe Bloggs wants to do X, you'd start thinking, well, okay, why 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 and what's the agenda and what's the mm-hmm. reason? So. What, where did this idea come from of you know individuals um, over states? Uh, you know, I, I suppose there's a. I'm I'm not an atheist, but there's the atheist phrase. Uh, you know, theists uh, disbelieve in all gods except one. You know, I'm like that, except I just believe uh, disbelieve in one more god. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's a coherent argument. Uh, and I, you know, sometimes explain myself as, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an atheist, but for government. Um, you know, y- you, an atheist, uh, say that, you know, God doesn't exist, but you acknowledge that people burn incense. You know, some men in robes chant in Latin, you know, mm-hmm. and in and, and the same way, uh, I don't believe that governments exist. You know, I, I believe there's a, a large white building in Washington, D.C. I believe that people <laughs> in fancy sets of clothes with little decorations on it uh, do things. Um, but every one of these people is a person and uh you know after world war ii and the nuremberg trials um there was this western concept uh which a little bit ex post facto but uh following orders is not an excuse everyone is an individual and you're responsible uh for your you know the moral content of your own decisions uh and, and i think that's absolutely true uh you know if you are the you know minister of transportation or you're a cog in the department of you know bureaucracy uh you are a person and you're attending a job where people pay you uh no one is forcing you to write memos to you know seize farms or to do this or to that you know you're a person um now I, I think that for you know sociobiological and evolutionary reasons, we have evolved to actually uh, go along well with diffusion of moral responsibility. Um, a group of fifty people, all of whom who are supremely uh, empowered individualists who want to think through the moral implications of every decision, are not going to be as effective a fighting force as a bunch of people who are all willing to pull together. And if the leader says slaughter them all, including men, women, and children, and they just do it uh there is unfortunately an evolutionary advantage to uh that set of traits um and you know evolution is not moral uh you know Mm -hmm. out in the state of nature things get eaten alive it's you know nature red in tooth and claw 
So um, anyway, I, I think that the human animal uh, inclines towards, well, Washington did X or France did X or the White House did X. And I guess we just have to go along with that, um, you know, sort of for biological reasons. We are wired to some degree to accept that. Don't accept that uh, as a moral stance. Um, but that's me. Uh, so anyway, um, and, and the question I think was, you know, why did I encode that in the book? Um, and, and the answer is, you know, the book was an act of artistic expression. And this gets, you know, I'm not uh, a partisan of Ayn Rand, but I'm familiar with Ayn Rand. And, uh, you know, she has this whole concept of, you know, each individual is a hero of creation. You create the building that you want to create, or you, you know, you do the thing that you want to do. And uh, writing science fiction pays a lot less well than writing software. Um, so, but, but I did it as sort of a, a labor of love. I had this, you know, sort of manifesto, this, this uh, uh, philosophical worldview that I wanted to share. Um, and so that was my motivation, um, not to fulfill the contract and get four more books out later this year. And uh, I, I think that that is a hugely important point of view to be shared. And it, you know, ties into uh, some greats in the field, you know, Tolkien, with Lord of the Rings. Um, th this is, again, you know, something that a lot of us read when we're 12 or 14 and don't fully appreciate until you come back and look at it later, you know, 25 or 35. Um, you know, his story was a story about very small people um, and free will. Uh, and the hobbits did not say, oh, we need Washington or we need Moscow or we need Gandalf to solve this for us. Uh, their reaction is, well, you know, if, if this task falls to me, then I must do it. And uh, it, it's sort of a very, um, you know, Tolkien was the sort of monarchist, Christian, anarchist, uh, weird mesh. Um, and, and the novels are very deeply embedded in his worldview that individual responsibility and individual morality is the only thing that matters and i agreed with that and wanted to show that myself okay um one one last huge mm. question regarding libertarianism specifically here and uh, it's a very blunt one what's the problem with democracy <laughs> um, <laughs> one well i'm sure there's there's you're right. thinking so, so, so I, I'm a terrible libertarian because I, even though from what I know of Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, I, I'm a huge fan. I haven't actually read any of his books yet. And, and uh, this is you know way up there on my to-do list. I am largely a deontologist uh, with some sort of virtue ethics uh, uh, slapped on the side. And the problem I have with any government is that I do not acknowledge that it has a legitimate right to use force to uh, compel individuals to do things. Mm -hmm. So the problem with democracy is the same as the problem with monarchy is the same as the problem with uh, the Supreme Soviet. Uh, it's not so much the manner of organization. It is the fact that uh, rights that properly rest in the individual have been uh, irrigated and taken by other groups. and. You know, if Stalin says, you know, Comrade Corcoran, uh, you need to work in tank factory number seven, and that's where you're going, and if you don't, you get bayoneted, uh, that is immoral. And if 51% of the American voters say, Comrade Corcoran, uh, your share is, you know, 38% of your income, uh, and we're coming up on April 15th uh, here in the U.S. when our taxes are due, so it's much on my mind. Uh, it, it's not quite as bad as laboring, you know, in a collective farm or being killed, um, but morally it's the same. People who have no right to my labor, to my time, um, you know, to infringe on my freedom, presume to tell me uh, what I'm allowed to say or not say, what I'm allowed to do or not do, how much of my own uh, uh, profits that I generate from my labor and from my capital, they are... Uh, 
willing to expropriate. So democracy is not uniquely bad. In fact, it might, it, it, I think it's uh, a more effective form of government um, for various reasons than, you know, Stalinism or Nazism or, you know, other uh, things. Uh, and it's unfortunate that's effective. Um, you know, there's a sort of ruthless Darwinian environment that governments exist in. And we are continually, you know, in, in the same way that we are continually breeding better plagues uh, and better diseases, where better means more infectious, um, mm -hmm. uh, more survivable against antibiotics. Because anytime we come up with a way to kill some of them, we kill the weak ones and we create a uh, selective environment that preserves uh, the stronger ones. I think we see something similar uh, in the world of government. Uh, you know, communism does poorly at keeping the consumers happy. Communism does poorly at uh, incorporating scientific evidence uh, with the whole uh, Lysenkoism versus Darwinian uh, stuff. And so we end up seeing communism fall and what's left are other semi-authoritarian forms of government, like the Western form of government. And so you know, my point of view is sort of an extremist right libertarian is great. Now we've got this sort of uh, um, uh, parasite that is uh, slightly stronger than the other forms. You know, it is a parasite that keeps the people happy with consumer goods. It is a parasite that listens to sea changes in the electorate and shifts slowly, but but steadily enough to keep the people from rebelling. Um, so that's what's wrong with democracy. Okay, that was extremely articulate. I think to wrap up here, we, uh, we can talk a little bit about, so you have, uh, is it called Liberty, Liberty Farm? Yes, uh, yeah. my wife named it. So this is, a, this is a homestead, and what does it mean to you to have that form of freedom? Mm, because right. this is sort of a, a physical articulation of libertarianism. Like as, right, as right. far as I can see, as close as someone can really get at the moment, I think. Everything goes back to Heinlein, who I've invoked, you know, 17 or 18 times. Uh, Heinlein has a quote, uh, and, and I forget the full thing, but a human being should be able to, uh, you know, set a bone, compose a sonnet, write a story, change a baby's diaper, uh, butcher a hog and so forth and so on. And then it ends with specialization is for insects. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose that we're all uh, in a malleable state when we were young and again by evolution uh this is good because we can learn important lessons from our elders um we can adapt to the environment that we're in um and we can you know learn the important lore about where we find water or food and uh we adapt to the cultural norms and i was exposed to heinlein at a very young age uh so maybe he had a uh, overwhelming influence on me but i came across this quote and um you know, Heinlein is very good at speaking with the voice of a wise uncle uh, and very convincing. And especially there's a kind of rebellion where as a youth, you want to reject your mom and dad to show your own autonomy. Um, but uh, often what you want to do is accept something else that's pretty close to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and so you get to express your own autonomy, but still operate well within the culture that you're embedded and so for me, Heinlein served that role. Uh, and I, I came across this quote. And then a few years later, I joined Boy Scouts at the age of 12 or 13. And I went to the local library and came across um, a series of books called Foxfire. And these are sort of historical anthropological books in the US in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, where students went up into the hills and they uh, interviewed old timers, i.e. people born in the 20s and 30s, talking to them about their old time skills, like making bacon and blacksmithing and everything. 
So after reading the Heinlein quote, I then went off and read these books and uh, sort of created a bit of a worldview from this that, you know, this is, you know, I, I think young men especially are always looking, what does it mean to be a man someday? And what sort of uh, person do I want to grow into? Well, I say young men especially, and presumably uh, girls are looking to wonder what does womanhood mean and who do I want to become? Mm-hmm. So between this Heinlein quote and these Foxfire books, um, I very much settled on the sort of goal of being able to do most things and having autonomy which doesn't mean that trade is bad or that industrial civilization is bad. Um, But this gets back to the ideal of the Jefferson Yeoman farmer, where when you can do things for yourself, you are not beholden. Um, In business, there's this concept of BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And, you know, if you are, there's a phrase that the kids use on Twitter these days, bug man, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. live in the pod, eat the bugs, uh, listen to the mainstream media. Uh, When you live that sort of urban lifestyle, you do not have a good BATNA. Um, You have to do what your landlord says. You have to park the car where the police officer says. You have to work the hours that your employer says. Um, and there just isn't a sense of personal autonomy. When you have a bunch of skills and have a bunch of tools and have a farm that you've paid off the mortgage so you own free and clear, you don't have to do much of anything. Um, now, getting back to Curtis Yarvin or Minchus Moldbug, uh, he has this concept of the natural aristocracy, uh, which is his phrase for people who will work even when they don't have to because they want to create great things. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a virtue ethic sense, I, I think that's ideal. Uh, so my worldview is, you know, sort of two parts Heinlein and Foxfire and one part uh, Moldbug, virtue ethics, natural aristocracy. <laughs> And my ideal life is to live on a farm where no one can tell me what to do, but then I do things anyway because I choose to. Yeah, so that is a description of my life. Um, I, you know, raise animals and I slaughter them and I butcher them and uh, make my own bacon and heat my house with firewood that I cut myself. And when I need a tool, I'll blacksmith it or make it on my milling machine. And uh, it's exhausting. (laughs) Sometimes I dream about friends who live in New York City and uh, all they have to do is tip the doorman every Christmas. Um, So, uh, but then circling way back, and this makes a great uh, thing to end uh, the interview on, uh, we were talking earlier about Nozick and Mediutopia or um, the Moldbuggian concept of patchwork. Uh, My ideal world is not one where everyone lives on a farm and raises their own food. If they want to, great. If they want to live in Manhattan and get food delivered from 10,000 local restaurants, that's also great. Uh, I'd like to live in a world where people get to have that choice. Have you, have you got anything to add or any upcoming publication dates or great. release dates? Uh, I, I guess something to add, go to Amazon, search for Travis <laughs> Corcoran, C-O-R-C-O-R-A-N. And there will be, my there will be uh, links in the description. Oh, wonderful. Um, and I am working on a couple of different books right now. I'm uh, working on books three and four in the Aristilla series, which wrap the whole thing up with a bow. Uh, I'm also working on, I'm like eight years after the market peak, uh, I'm working on a series of linked tales set in a zombie uprising, Um, but they are all uh, can-do sort of engineering tales where people uh, do welding and other stuff. And then finally, uh, in addition to the day job of coding, I am working on a farming and homesteading manual which takes its title from the Heinlein quote uh the title is tentatively a human being should be able to butcher a pig so very nice so lots of projects just need to get them all done okay thanks very much thank you for your time i appreciate it